Morning. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you all in person today. Uh, my wife, Wendy, uh, got exposed on Monday, and so we're having to quarantine here at the house. Um, but this is the first Sunday in Advent, and uh, we're going to talk today about the story behind the story. You know, someone asked me recently, why is it that so many of our best hymns and songs about the true hope of Christians, not just hope that we'd like die and go to heaven, like some spiritual place up in the clouds someday, but that the new heavens and the new earth would come, that God would make all things new. Why is it that so many of those best hymns and songs about the true hope of Christians are Christmas songs that we only sing once a year? It's a, it's, a, it's a good question, because the season of Advent is a particularly appropriate time to get in touch with longing and for things to be made right. It's certainly um, a season that we need right now, right? Um, but these are things that Christians should be thinking about, praying about, longing for all year long. But it is true. Some of the best songs about the hope to come are considered Christmas songs that we don't sing very often. One of my favorites, and one that I wish we would sing more often, is Joy to the World by Isaac, Isaac Watts. Now, there's actually a great deal of controversy among hymnologists about whether this is a song about the first coming of Jesus or about the second coming. I think it's actually both in one, right? But the particular verse that I love is when it says this, He, meaning Jesus, He comes to make his healing flow, far as the curse is found. That's a big hope. It's not just a hope that a baby would teach us how to love one another, but that all things would be made right. As far as the curse and the fall has affected things, and it's affected everything, Jesus comes to bring healing that will flow as far as the curse is found. And in this song, we're reminded that Christmas is about a much bigger story, a story that God has been building and developing for a very, very long time. We're going to read from Luke chapter 1, the story of how Jesus comes uh, to be prophesied to be born by the angel to Mary. And we're going to read the song that she sings in response and then we're going to talk a little bit about the story behind the story. So Luke chapter 1, I'll pick up at verse 26. I'm reading the ESV. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. <coughs> Excuse me. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said this song, which is in church history called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. It's a familiar story, probably, to many of you. But I want to talk a little bit about the story behind the story. Or if you're old enough to remember Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. I used to love to listen to him uh, on the AM radio when I was young. He'd always tell a little bit of a story, and then he'd tell you the rest of the story, the story behind the story that you knew there was another bigger story behind it. And I always loved that. And that's really what we're talking about today. The incarnation, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary so that she would conceive, even though she was a virgin, God taking on human flesh, being born of a woman in the little town of Bethlehem is an astonishing story of God coming to be with us. But we need to remember that this story, as glorious as it is, comes in the context of an even bigger story. And that's what we want to look at today. We want to consider the importance of this bigger story. You know, I was struck this week looking at the full text of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know that hymn? Or we call it a Christmas song, but it's really a hymn. It's by Charles Wesley, one of the great hymn writers who wrote over 6,500 hymns. Um, we don't usually sing all the verses to this hymn. Um, there's some wonderful verses, even though the first line 
wasn't actually so great. Um, for a little no extra charge tidbit for you. Uh, his friend George Whitfield actually had to alter the first line or we probably wouldn't be singing this hymn. What Wesley originally wrote was, Hark how all the Welkin rings, W-E-L-K-I-N. Not real catchy. George Whitfield changed it to Hark the Herald Angels, which is what a Welkin is. It's a Herald Angel. Um, Hark the Herald Angels sing, right? Um, but the, the verses that we rarely sing connect the dots, right? I mean, Wesley does a wonderful job telling what happened at Christmas in this hymn. But the rest of the verses flesh out the bigger story. The, the bigger story that Jesus came not just to live with us, or even just to die for us. He came to change us and to change the world. Listen to these verses. Again, rarely sung. Come, desire of nations come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. It's talking about Jesus, the conquering seed prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. Would you rise, O conquering seed? Jesus, and bruise in us the serpent's head, wherever he has still some uh, foothold or stronghold, so to speak. Next verse, now display thy saving power, ruin nature now restore, now in mystic union join, thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, that means wipe it away, stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, and again, another name for Jesus, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain thee, the life, the inner man. Oh, to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. You see, Wesley sees there's more going on here in the Christmas story than just a miraculous birth. The significance of the birth story cannot be understood apart from the bigger story that is its context. Elsewhere, the Bible says about all these things surrounding the birth, I love this phrase, that Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. And I love that. Even though you see in the Magnificat, she really understands a lot more than modern Christians tend to give Jewish believers credit for understanding. She understands a lot more than you might think. And remember, she's probably at this point 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. But she also knows that something big is happening, something the full significance of which cannot be understood at the time. So she ponders all these things in her heart. In fact, it's not until the death and resurrection of Jesus that the full significance of this baby born, God with us, was going to be understood. So I want us to look at a couple things about this story. First is this story is the continuation of a bigger story. I don't know if you've seen this painting. I hope you have. Um, it's called Mary Comforts Eve. And it, it's, a, it's wonderful. It was actually painted by a Catholic nun. And the picture has been floating around the internet for a few years now. We actually have uh, a copy in our bathroom downstairs. Um, here, let me describe it for you. It's, it's a picture of Eve, who you can tell has shame on her face, red shame on her face, and she's holding an apple with a bite in it. But Mary is standing before her, pregnant, 
taking Eve's other hand and putting it on her belly. Mary consoles Eve. Mary comforts Eve. It's a beautiful picture of what I might call poetic justice. Eve stands there full of shame, her hand still clutching the apple, but pregnant Mary stands before her, placing Eve's other hand on her baby to feel this baby kicking, as if to say to her, I know, Eve, that your story changed everything. But there is a bigger story coming. This one in my belly, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You know, I think of it this way. It's like reading The Hobbit and then finding out that there is such a thing as the Lord of the Rings. Now, I don't know if this has the same power if you've only watched the movies, because of course the Lord of the Rings movies came out first. But imagine if you'd only read the books, you read The Hobbit, which is a great story, but it's just a story about a quest. Bilbo Baggins, you remember, titled it There and Back Again. It's a quest. You go there, you do this thing, you come back again, right? The Lord of the Rings is a totally different kind of story. It's an epic tale. And I don't know if you know this or not, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit first. And even when he wrote The Hobbit, originally he had not worked out the full significance of the ring. After The Lord of the Rings was published, Tolkien actually had to go back and alter some things in The Hobbit to make it consistent with the bigger story about the ring. See, this ring is such a key thing. Finding the ring, as Bilbo does, is both a curse and an opportunity to make all things right. But not even Gandalf realizes at the time Bilbo finds the ring, the full significance. And as you find out in The Lord of the Rings, Bilbo has to go ponder and research the story of the ring to begin to grasp the full significance of what happened when Bilbo found this ring. It's a cool story, Bilbo finding a ring. It enables him to escape Gollum and, and survive. All right, great story. But the full significance of the ring is so much bigger, right? See, the best stories have a certain poetic justice in their resolution. Don't you love those kind of stories? They have something that you couldn't see at the time, but when the story resolves, you exclaim, of course, that makes perfect sense. I've been reading a lot of mysteries lately, especially uh, Dorothy Sayers, her Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries. They're wonderful, brilliant. She was one of the Inklings, friends with Tolkien and Lewis, the only woman who was kind of part of their company. And um, her mysteries are wonderful. And a good mystery, you think you can figure it out, but you really don't see how everything fits together until that final piece of the puzzle, that final resolution comes. And then you think back over the whole story and it takes on a greater significance. I want you to understand that that's what this story of a baby being born is like. It's the kind of story that when you see the bigger story behind it, it takes on even more incredible significance. Now, if you go back to that story of Eve, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, and we read this for our Advent reading, Eve thinks at first 
that her story would have a quick resolution. You notice, as we read, that God promises to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Soon after that, a little later in Genesis, Mary has a baby. Sorry, Eve has a baby. And she says in the Hebrew, Lo, or behold, look, the Lord has given me the man. In the Hebrew, it's the definite article. What's going on here? Mary, sorry, Eve thinks that the son she has just had is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. The Lord has given me the man, it says literally in the Hebrew. But as she's going to find out, this child is not the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And as the reality of that sinks in, time for her to have another child. You know what she names her next child? She names her next child Hevel. It's usually translated in English, Abel, but it's Hevel in Hebrew, and Hevel means frustration. What a name. She goes from the man, the one who's going to put death to death, and by the time she has the second son, she realizes, no, this story is going to go on for quite a while, and she names her second son Frustration. The reality of what has happened with sin and brokenness entering the world through Adam and her has begun to sink in. But as we're looking at the story today, there was a childbirth still to come that would usher in salvation. And there's a certain poetic justice in the way the story develops in the Bible. In fact, there's a rather obscure verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that seems to allude to this poetic justice. Now, it's in the middle of a section that's kind of a controversial section about women and leadership in the church, and, and, and I hate to even bring it up, except it connects this poetic justice point so well. Um, it, it says this, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, so what's going on here? It's a, it's, a, it's a hard passage. I'll tell you, almost every phrase is debated among the Bible scholars, okay? And you can spend hours digging into all the different possible interpretations. But here's the one that I think makes the most sense. It's the, the interpretation of poetic justice. You know, at, Paul is not saying that Eve was at fault. In fact, he says that she was deceived and became a transgressor. He doesn't say that Adam was deceived. In other words, Adam knew full well what he was doing. And as Paul says in Romans 5, sin comes to humanity not through Eve, but through Adam, who is the covenant head, right? So Adam is not deceived. As some have used this passage to say, well, women are more gullible, therefore they shouldn't be in leadership. No, Paul's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, it was through the woman that this sin came into the world, but it is going to be through what only a woman can do, bearing a child, that life and healing will come to the world. It's poetic justice. When it says here, yet she will be saved through childbearing, it's important to know that in the Greek, that participle, that I-N-G word, childbearing, um, it, it, it says, actually in the Greek, 
there's a definite article for it. Again, like a the. So it could be translated as a participle through childbearing, but it could also be translated, and this is the way I think it should be translated, through the childbirth. In other words, even though sin came into the world through the woman being deceived, so salvation will come through a woman bearing a child. The seed of the woman promised there in Genesis 3, 15. Do you see it? Right? There's this, this poetic justice. This birth story, this story of a little babe born in Bethlehem, has power to swallow up the shame story of Adam and Eve. Through Mary's child, Eve's shame will be wiped away. Through Mary's child, all of our shame will be wiped away. And healing will go as far as the curse is found. See, Isaac Watts understood that. So this story, this birth story in Luke chapter 1 is the continuation of a bigger story in a way that provides this beautiful poetic justice. But this bigger story, I want you to also understand, is a big enough story to swallow up the brokenness. And I don't know about you, but this last year has had more sadness and brokenness than most any year I can think of. And I don't know about you again, but for me, if I'm not connecting to the story of the gospel and the hope that it brings, then what I try to do, the way I try to get through things, is just try to make the best of things, keep moving forward, and not stop and feel the sadness, feel the dis disappointment, right? One of the, the sinful tendencies of my heart is to try to dull pain by killing my longings, to try to make peace with the brokenness that we live in. But a couple of years ago, that... Um, that strategy was exposed um, in God's grace. Um, and it was at the Ryman Auditorium uh, at the Behold the Lamb show that Andrew Peterson puts on every year. Hoping that some of you have seen that. If you haven't, boy, I really hope you would. Andrew wrote this album years ago called Behold the Lamb because he really wanted to write about the Christmas story in a way that the Christmas story was seen in the bigger context, starting from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So he begins the story in the garden with sin entering the world, and by the time the finale comes, he brings out all the various performers that have been throughout the evening for a big mashup. And they're singing all the different songs over top of each other, longing and sorrow juxtaposed with hope beyond hope. And there was a moment in the middle of that sound montage swirling all around that this thought pierced me. The story that we celebrate tonight, the story that the lamb has come, born as a baby, is bigger than the sadness. And it must be quite a story to be bigger than the sadness. The story that swallows up death must be the biggest, most epic story ever conceived. And guys, it is. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's a place where you see a woman about to give birth, and there's a dragon there, a serpent, a dragon, poised, ready to devour the child. Do you know what's going on? God is letting us see the story behind the Christmas story. 
Ever since God promised Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that through her would come a child who would crush the head of the serpent, the dragon, Satan, that dragon, the enemy of God's kingdom, has been trying to stop that story from coming true. We love to celebrate the birth of the Christ child. But you know, for many Christians in the world, they also remember what happened soon after the birth. And we would do well to remember this as well. They have what's called the Feast of the Slaughter of the Innocents. Don't excise that part of the story. See, when Herod, as an instrument of Satan, full of fury and pride, sought to prevent the Christ child from growing up to do his work, he killed all the male children under the age of two. That's the picture in Revelation. Death sought to swallow up the Christ child, but he escaped and went on to do a work that would one day swallow up death itself. How big does a story have to be to swallow up death? For death to be swallowed up, there must be something bigger than death, and there is. This story is bigger than death, bigger than the sorrow and the brokenness, but this story does not make an end run around death and brokenness. There is death and brokenness all through it and in it. You know, as you look back on this last year and you look ahead to the new year, ask yourself this question. Where do you need to be reminded that this story is bigger than the brokenness, bigger than your sin, bigger even than death? This is not just a story about a cute little baby that inspires us to give gifts to the less fortunate. This is a story about God keeping the promise he made in Genesis 3.15 to bring the seed of the woman against all satanic opposition, even the slaughter of the innocents. God's commitment and perseverance to bring this one who would swallow up death forever. But he doesn't swallow up death forever by avoiding death. No, he swallows up death forever by submitting to death. Even a shameful death, death on a cross. We should never think of Christmas without remembering Easter. I think it's one of the great tragedies that in our world we separate Easter and Christmas. They're like months and months apart, and we rarely think about the two of them together. But we should always remember Easter when we think of Christmas. Because he didn't come just so that we could coo and, and ogle him. <laughs> he came so that he could die. Because the bigger story is a story about death being swallowed up. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you for the poetic justice that through death, death is defeated. That through the birth of this helpless child, Lord, you are going to do your greatest work. We pray, Lord, that as we think about this Christmas story, this story of the babe coming, Lord, that we would remember that you came for a purpose and you accomplished what you set out to do. We thank you. Help us to praise you and to trust you. And this season, to remember Easter, at Christmas.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.